Thanks to Harry's for supporting Motley Fool Answers. Get your free trial set, including a razor handle, five-blade cartridge, and shave gel. Just go to harrys.com slash fool. This episode of Motley Fool Answers is also brought to you by 23andMe.com. With 23andMe's genetic service, you can learn what percentage of your DNA comes from places like Italy, Finland, East Asia, or Africa. Visit 23andMe.com slash fool. That's 23andme.com slash fool. This is Mollyville Answers. I'm Allison Southwick, and I'm joined as always by Robert Brokamp, personal finance expert here at the Molly Fool. Always a pleasure to be with you again, Allison. Today is part three of our four part series on the history of market crashes, thanks to the help of Collaborative Fund's Morgan Housel. This week, we're visiting the excitingly nerdtastic days of the dot com bubble. We'll also answer your question about getting a job in the exciting field of finance. All that and more on this week's episode of Molly Fool Answers. It's time for Answers Answers, and today's question comes from Jason. In my mid-30s, I discovered a passion for all things finance and decided to return to school for a second bachelor's. Totally crushed the derivatives class. Your options guy would be so proud. I'm sure Jeff would. My question is, what is the typical entry-level position for a stock analyst? And is that something a person with all the middle-aged responsibilities, mortgage family, etc., could jump into? Uh, so I would say about once or twice a month we get a question about getting into finance in some way, and it might be being a stock analyst, might be becoming a financial planner, or something like that. So um, I've been sort of resistant to answer the questions because it's been almost 20 years since I was in the traditional financial services industry. Here at the Motley Fool, I would not consider us the typical, <laughs> typical career path for someone who wants to do it. So I'm not sure I'm an expert, but I'll share a few thoughts, and hopefully, Jason, they can help. So, I would first of all say that you first have to think about whether you want to move or not. And if you want to stay where you are, see what's in your area and what's being offered. And besides the typical job sites, look at the finance related associations in your area. So, it could be the Financial Planning Association, it could be the National Association of Personal Financial Advisors, it could be the CFA Institute. They all have local chapters. If you have one in your area, they almost all have some sort of job board or something like that. And that includes stuff for someone who wants to be more like an analyst, like someone who would want to go work for a mutual fund or something like that? It could be. Okay. It could be. But th- that's where you'll get an idea of what's available in your area. Mm-hmm. And then, again, if you're willing to move, then you move out to sort of the bigger firms. A lot of people start with the big name brokerages, but you could expand that to things like the mutual fund companies. Research companies like Morningstar or S&P, even insurance companies have analysts and financial planners. Um, the one thing that I'm, I would be cautious about is that there's a big debate about the future of finance-related professions. Um, there's a big question of, of how many stock analysts and how many financial planners we'll need in the future based on all kinds of things, one of them being the trend towards indexing. And if everyone's indexing, how many people do you need analyzing stocks? Trend towards automation, where more and more companies are using computers, basically, to pick stocks and asset allocations and even do some financial planning. On the other hand, the industry is heavily tilted towards people in their late 40s, 50s, and 60s, baby boomers, who are eventually going to retire, and particularly in the world of financial planners, there aren't enough people coming up through the ranks to take their places. Really? So if I were trying to get into the industry, I would do basically what I did when I got into the industry back in 97, and that is I found an existing group that was already managing money, they needed someone to be basically a junior planner, 
help with some administrative stuff, but they were going to show me the ropes. And that's important because if you want to be a certified financial planner like I am, you have to take classes, you have to pass the test, but you also have to get three years worth of experience, but you only need two years of experience if you're being mentored by a CFP. So if you want to get into the financial planning profession, I would do it that way rather than just trying to go out on my own. And ideally, you'd be hooking up with someone who's a little older, who's getting close to retiring, so that when they retire, you take over their business. For the stock analysts, and I asked this question of some of the analysts here at The Motley Fool, what would they do? And first of all, they, they emphasized, not surprisingly, on the education part. Read lots of good books. Read all the letters from Warren Buffett. Um, a shout out for our latest edition of The Motley Fool Investment Guide, of course. But they also said you have to somehow start building up some sort of a record uh, of your picks, but also your ability to communicate analysis and why you did it. And one way to do that is something we have at The Motley Fool called CAPS. It's at caps.fool.com. You create a profile, you pick investments, and you can basically blog there about why you pick certain investments. That will basically show you, number one, do you really like doing this? Number two, are you good at it? And number three, if you do decide to apply for jobs, you can send that link and say, see, this is my record by an objective third party, and you can read my analysis and hopefully impress them that way. Yeah, but here at The Motley Fool, we do things a little differently than most of Wall Street. So... Um, I think really what you have to do, and, and, and it's the way I got into the financial services business and the way I got into the fool, you just have to find a way to get your foot in the door, show them that you're capable and you know what you're doing, and then work toward the, the specialty that you're most interested in. I should also add that because of this trend towards automation, one of our analysts here, Brendan Matthews, suggested really you should probably also be looking at skills related to that, like programming, data analysis, and things like that, because there's more demand for that type of analysis than the traditional bottom-up stock analysis, depending on which firm you go to. Oh, so where you join the stock analysis, but you'd also be able to create the algorithms that companies are now looking or sort of trending towards. Yeah, isn't that funny? Like with every job, it would help if you knew how to write code. Yes. Like it doesn't matter what job. Yep. Ugh. <laughs> I'll get back on my Python classes, I swear. Brendan, Brendan basically said to me, saying you want to be a stock analyst now is like saying you want to be a newspaper reporter or a DJ at a radio, show, at a radio station. Ouch! Could be a fun job, but it's an, their industry, it's an industry that's kind of, in terms of that typical job, we don't know what kind of future there is 10, 20 years down the road. Thanks to Harry's for supporting Motley Fool Answers. As a Motley Fool Answers listener, you already know that the shave you get from Harry's is Mrs. Brocamp approved. Isn't that right? <laughs> it is. And I didn't cut myself, which is quite an accomplishment. So not only does Harry's offer a great shave, it's at a great price, which I know Answers listeners are going to love. It's also delivered straight to your door. So by taking less profit and selling directly to you over the internet, Harry's offers their blades at half the price. Just $2 a blade compared to the $4 or more you'll pay at the drugstore. As an Answers listener, you can get a free trial set, including razor handle, five-blade cartridge, and shave gel. You do have to pay $3 for shipping, by the way. But still, that's $13 worth of free shaving stuff. It's good stuff. Just go to harrys.com slash fool right now. That's harrys.com slash fool. It's the late 90s. Everyone is going crazy about the internet. Could tech companies take advantage of this series of tubes and make heaps of money? Sure, but the key is having a foosball table and knowing how to work hard and play hard. Or just play hard and throw equity around like confetti. Whee! 
What could go wrong? Well, Morgan Housel joins us to explain exactly what went wrong. Hi, Morgan. How's it going? So this is part three of our series on market crashes, and today we're going after the dot-com bubble. Most recent one. Kind of. Kind of. Well, I, guess, I guess we've had more craziness since then. But The Great Recession was a little crazy. Yeah. But see, that was this is an important point too. I think the Great Recession in the stock market wasn't necessarily a bubble in the stock market. It was a bubble in housing that kind of mm. spilled over to the stock market. But the last big stock bubble we have that we had was was in the late nineties. When you look so at the Great fun. Recession, there's only one year calendar year that the stock market was down. Dot com, you had three years three in, in a row, row. Yeah. of down years. Yeah, and there's just so many jokes to be made. Like, I think by law, we have to make a pets.com joke. <laughs> I don't know what it's going to be, but it's coming. Should we do it now? Well, go for it. Do you have a pet? Do you just like one that you can just break out? No, but no. Okay. No. Do you? That may have to be the joke. But the here, joke but, that there's a joke. It's no, kind of meta. Stick with us, people. Here's what's, I think. When people bring up pets.com, because that's like the standard joke. It and, is the joke. And eToys and Webvan, all three of those companies, like the idea behind them, are viable businesses They're today. They're great. They're great ideas. So it wasn't necessarily, I think that's one of the craziest parts about the dot-com bubble, is that all these things that we even still today use as a sign of how crazy things were back then, they weren't that crazy. They were great business ideas that were just maybe 10 years early. Ah, boy. All right. So let's get into it. So. For me, the dot-com bubble, I was kind of around, I was kind of alive, not an investor. So from my outsider perspective, it seems like this perfect storm of exuberance over this new thing, the internet, and not quite understanding it, and these companies coming in, and it's we know it's big, we don't know exactly why. But then also there's investing becomes investing in these companies also becomes a lot easier. So that's my quick take, but you're going to give us the longer take and tell No, me I if think I'm right. I think that's exactly it. And those two points coming together at the same time is really what made it crazy versus other times in history when there was a new industry that was coming along that was going to change the future. One, the one in the 1960s was plastics, which is almost funny to say. <laughs> right, that was in the 1960s. Plastic was like this was this is going to change the world. And the companies that were making plastic were like the big innovative companies that had huge growth in front of them. But plastics didn't change how anyone invested at all. So you had a lot of excitement. You had overvaluation. But with the internet, it was hey, not only is this going to change the world, but now you can invest way way easier and faster and cheaper, and you're just bombarded with more information than ever before. So you put those two together, and I think that's kind of the backbone of what led everything to get out of control so quickly. And the other thing that's you know about this period is that when people talk about the dot com boom, they talk about a kind of late 90s, this is kind of how they say it, or sometimes they just say the 1990s. It was really only like a 12 or 18 month period in 1998 and 1999 that it started getting, that it got really out of hand. It, like, it really happened pretty quickly. And for most of the 90s, even when this was going on, there was growth and the stock market was doing well, but it was all, it was it was it was it was mostly rational and made a lot of sense for what was going on, and it was just kind of like this blow off top right at the end where things started getting really crazy, and uh, and and a lot of that craziness was really only captured in a small number of companies in that in that period at the end where you know the stock market in general, or if if you take a look at the stock market, most individual companies peaked in 1997, 1998. And it was the gains that the market uh, you know, experienced in 1999, when things were really getting crazy and the market was going up 30, 40, 50%, was driven by like five companies, like AOL, Walmart, GE, 
just, just a few big te- tech companies, Cisco, Microsoft, Yahoo. You know, that's where all of like the overvaluation was. But a lot of the hype ended way before that. So there's there's a lot of nuance in what happened that I think gets missed, and that when we just lump everything into, oh, the '90s were a big irrational, you know, crazy time to invest. I think that's directionally true, but there's a lot that went on in between that that, that kind of takes the story in different directions. When did things start warming up with the internet? So it's like the internet, it's a thing. What? When was that? I think you have to take it back to personal computers, which was the 70s and 80s. And even then, that's when you know Microsoft and IBM really started getting getting into the game, particularly like the mid and early 80s. But even then, it was still seen as like a, a, a something that a, a, a tech hobbyist would have in their house. It wasn't really. You had people like Bill Gates, who were the visionary, saying this is going to be on everyone's desktop. But very few people outside of you know the you know, Bill Gates and kind of his core cohort, Radio Shack. <laughs> Customers. Exactly. Those yeah. people really, really started believing it until the early 90s, which is kind of when Windows as we know it kind of took off and the, the user, the, the interface of personal computers really started making sense for people who had no tech background whatsoever. Oh, yeah, the mouse, the mouse. Exactly. Clicking and not, on not, things. Not just and... the mouse. They had the mouse for like a decade before that. But previous versions of personal computers, like MS-DOS, like you, you really had to know what you were doing to get any usefulness out of it. Yeah. And it was really kind of the first version of Windows when it made sense. Like, oh, you have, a, you have folders, and you click on the folders, and you have stuff in there. Like, it, so that was like early 90s when it really started taking off, that average individual people could get something useful out of this. And then in terms of when the internet started, really the, the, the first event that gets cited a lot as kind of the birth of the dot-com bubble, when people really started opening it up to not just the internet's potential, but the investment potential, was when Netscape went public, which was, I think, 1994. And its, it's shares doubled on the first day that it went IPO, wow. that, that it went public. And that was kind of the first signal, the first... Uh, you know, the first example of what was to come, and the you know n- not just in terms of how this was going to change people's lives, but how it was going to change how people invested as well. Yeah, spoiler: our young kids listening to the podcast have no idea what Netscape even is. No, so no. even though it was the one that started it all, that was a big deal because before that you had the internet, but it was again it was something that you needed to be a, a, a tech genius to use, and the browser was the first one that brought it to average everyday people in a form that they could use. Yeah, I I always used Ask Jeeves. Oh, I did too. That was. Yeah. Ask Jeeves was a good one, yeah. too. And then Google came along and all those other ones, too. I remember I was a teacher, actually, when the internet first started taking out. I think I've, I got my first email address in 1994, and I still have that same email address. You do not. I do. Really? And for me, like being a teacher, like that just opened up your world. Being able to show kids different things, to be able to pull up a video. YouTube wasn't around at that point, but you could still get videos. Um, it was just mind-blowing. And then from there, I went to... Um, the financial services industry, and I and I started becoming a broker in 1997. And one of the first jobs you have to do there is cold call people. And every time I would call cold call people, they'd say, "I don't need you. I'm doing better all on my own." Which is not something you could say even in the late 80s, because you needed a broker to buy a stock. But that was that gets back to how things just changed so much that you didn't need a financial advisor. I think also looking back on that too, people were doing well because they were concentrated in tech stocks. Once the downturn came, they probably didn't do so well. And what so so many people did when they could start investing on their own was not investing on their own, but day trading on their own. Right. That's kind of the first iteration of, hey, I can I don't need a stockbroker. I can do this by myself. I don't have to ask anyone's permission. What am I going to do? These were not 
buy and hold investors. Yeah. This is the whole concept of day trading was kind of born in the 1990s when here's your E-Trade account or TD Ameritrade, Daytech, that was one of the big ones in the right. 90s. Yeah, yeah. Here's your Daytech account. What are you going to do? You're just going to trade stocks all day. And because there was so much momentum in tech stocks, they were just going up day after day after day. That just made the concept of day trading that much more enticing. Not only had the opportunity to day trade, but hey, maybe you could double your money in a day or a week. Yeah. Right. So it just drew in all kinds of people who had no idea what they were doing or no business doing then. Earlier this year, the Bespoke Investment Group published a, a table of the composition of the sectors of the S&P 500 over various increments. So you look back at 1990, tech stocks made up 6.3% of the S&P 500. By 1995, it was 9.3, so growing. By 1999, it was 29% of the S&P 500. And the, they have all the sectors going back to 1990 up until 2017. And at no point do you see any other sector making up that much of the S&P 500. And so much of the gain in that way, back to what we were saying earlier, was really just a handful of companies. Yahoo, Cisco, AOL, Lucent. Lucent. There's a few companies that were worth hundreds of billions of dollars Yeah, and that, that were really driving the, driving the bulk of that. So when you think of the dot-com bubble, I do think of the foosball table. I think of the cool Northern California company to work for, and uh, and you know people, th- you know leadership giving everyone stock options, and we're all going to get rich while playing foosball together. So did most of those companies never even go public, and they just burned private investment? Yeah, like the, private the, the other thing that happened at the same time of this was kind of the birth of VC investing. And VC is a pretty young industry. Um, a good, good example of this, Phil Knight, uh, who is the founder and CEO of Nike, wrote a really good memoir recently. And he's talking about running Nike in the 1970s. And his only source of capital was bank loans, because there was no VC industry back then. So even as Nike was growing 100%, 200% per year, there were no VC investors to fund him. And it, it wasn't until the 80s and early mid-90s that VC as an industry really got its act together and, and, and started raising enough money that they could go out and seed all these new tech companies. And I think because of that, it was just like a big hurrah among entrepreneurs who, uh, and, and, and the VCs themselves that really didn't have a, a good idea of what they were doing at this time because the industry itself was so young. There wasn't a lot of generational knowledge that was passed on you know, by, their, uh, by their supervisors and past generations of investors. So it, it was just kind of a, a big party of money getting thrown around at the time. You had VC, money, VC investors that had a ton of money to invest, didn't really know how to deploy it very effectively. Yeah. And then you had a lot of legitimate innovation that brought in a lot of other entrepreneurs that maybe thought they were innovating, but really weren't really doing that much. It just had so much momentum in the industry that it just collected a lot of money, which is just a long way of saying, yes, there was a lot of money burning going on at the time. Yeah. And, well, VC also seems like such a virtuous circle, or not virtuous, if you, depending on who you are and how you feel about it, where it's like, I'm a tech entrepreneur, and now I'm going to become a VC and invest my money yeah. in other tech entrepreneurs. And yeah, then they're going to, and that. it just keeps going and going and yeah. going. Uh, all right. So the internet, it's going to be the next big thing. Everyone's investing in it. At the same time, the Motley Fool is getting swept right. up in this. Yeah, mm-hmm. we're going through it right along with everyone else. We've talked about this in previous episodes. I joined in 99 at the Motley Fool when we, had, uh, when we were at, I don't know, 150 employees. At one point, we were over 400. Yeah. And then things changed. Uh, and by the time at the bottom, where we were, Rick, like 70 people or so, something like that. Yeah. And I'll say, living through that, one thing that is a part of this in terms of the stock market and how bad it got, part of it was the September 11th attacks happened in 2001. And where you, you, you could look at some things. For, for example, 2001, small cap stocks actually did pretty well. 
it was the tech stops that, stocks that were suffering, but you could look elsewhere in the stock market and find good returns. But then September 11th came, and I think that changed a lot. I remember being in the company and, and David Gardner saying, there's some things you can't predict when you're running a business, and one of them is terrorist attacks. Wow. By law, are we also required to talk about the AOL Time Warner deal? <laughs> As we sit here in the Time Life building, it is. We are in the Time Life building, which is crazy. That is true. Yeah, because um, that feels like such an iconic moment of the dot com bubble, too. Yeah, right. Well, in um, 1999, AOL was the tenth biggest publicly traded company in the country, and we all had their floppy disks and CD ROMs. You've got we mail. All, you've got mail. Mm-hmm. It was a movie starring Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan. I mean, come on. <laughs> <laughs> they peaked. They peaked right there, quite literally. So, what made the bubble burst? In addition to September 11, that's one of the big things too. We we're talking about the crash of '87 and even the crash of 1929, where there's not one specific event that you can pinpoint in the newspaper on the day the stock market peaked and said this is what caused it. It's just things kind of get out of control, and I think when enough when enough people start to question what they're doing and enough people start whispering. To their coworkers and their cousins and their neighbors, like, hey, this is this is starting to get pretty crazy. I think those moods can shift pretty quickly, and then and then it just snowballs just as fast in reverse as it did on the way up. So you don't need that much momentum on the way down before enough people throw in throw in the towel, and then just as you know, momentum, you know, just as buying begets more buying on the way up, selling does the same thing on the way down. So stocks peaked in March of 2000, and a lot of people have gone back and said, why March 2000? What happened at this time? There, there's really not any specific event that really triggered it beyond just people's moods and attitudes changing. And it wasn't until you know, 18 or some odd months later that 9-11 hit. That's a specific event, obviously, that took the economy and the stock market down a whole nother level. But before that, it was, it was, it was really just kind of a big change in moods. You know, there were some events of of, of companies that were going to go public and their IPO was canceled because there wasn't enough demand. But that in itself is kind of triggered by the same uh, change in investor moods. Just people just start giving up at some point. Mm-hmm. What did we learn from the dot-com bubble? I, I think a lot of it, if, if, if you look at other new industries that really changed the world, one I think of is, is the birth of the car industry in the early 1900s. There were hundreds, if not a thousand, car makers, car manufacturers in the early 1900s, and three of them survived Mm -hmm. Ford, Chrysler, and GM. And I think the same thing happened with the internet, where you had thousands of people try their hand at this new technology that clearly was going to change the world, and a very small handful of them survived. You talked about Ask Jeeves earlier. That was one of the big th- that was one of the big search engines. And then there was there was Alta Vista and all these other new search engines. Dozens of people that could see the opportunity and said, "I'm going to try my hand at it." But in the end, it was pretty much Google that won. You had one company that won it in the end. And there's always that that big just like culling of the herd that happens whenever you have a new industry of thousands of people trying and only a few will make it. And because of that, in hindsight, you're going to have all these horror stories from the 99.9% of companies that didn't make it. And then you have investors that had that lost a ton of money on those, and that scars them for a whole nother generation. But the but the car industry itself changed the world and you know changed how we live. And the internet did the same thing. Even if along the way it burned not just a few people, but most, if not almost everyone who partook in it. So that's that, that's kind of the risk of new industries. Is that even when you can identify like this industry is going to change how we live, identifying the specific company, I don't want to say needle in the haystack, but close to it, that's going to be the survivor, 
is incredibly difficult to do. And if you are going to play that game, I think preparing yourself that the success rate of these companies that are going to not only survive but thrive for decades after it is in the single-digit percentage, uh, you know, in 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 terms of of success rates. David Gardner is one who is not only good at identifying companies that are going to do well, but more importantly, I think he has the disposition to deal with the loss rate that comes along with identifying new industries, mm-hmm. and and he would be. Uh, It's not that he's happy about it, but I think he has a disposition to be okay if half the companies in his portfolio do extremely poorly, knowing that one or two are going to do really well and drive that portion of his portfolio. Warren Buffett famously stayed out of all this. It wasn't in my circle of competence. I'm not going to buy these type of stocks. But I remember him saying, the internet's going to be very good for consumers. I don't think it's going to be all that great for most investors. Mm -hmm. And I think it's true. It did change our lives, but a lot of investors didn't do much for them. Yeah. I mean, you could we we could sit here and come up with ten companies that probably that probably make up more than ninety percent of the money that was made in the internet in the past twenty years. Google, yeah. Facebook, Amazon. Yeah. It's not many yeah. for thousands of companies that went public during this time. So, yeah. I was in college in ninety eight. I think no, yeah, I was in college in the nineties, and I went to school with a guy, and he in Walla we we're in Walla Walla, Washington. And he was like, you, you a just developer. say that because it's fun to it's say. It's fun to say. Um, and he, Google was just becoming a thing. And so he decided to go out and buy uh, different variations on Google because people couldn't remember to type Google into their search. So he, he bought Boogle, he bought Woogle, he bought Flugel, <laughs> thinking that someday Google would pay him. He just opened a Dr. Seuss book and he, came up with yeah, all the just, different just variations. Yeah, he just Google with everything. Because he's like, well, someday Google's going to pay me to get these domains to redirect them to Google because no one will be able to remember the name Google. And it worked! Google called him up. They're like, you need to sell us Boogle and Moogle and, you know, what, whatever. Yeah. But he should have held out longer because this was still in like the '90s when they paid him off. That's smart. There are a lot yeah. of there, I know there are people that do that for like as soon as as a celebrity or a singer or a, or a or a movie star has even a tiny bit of success, go in and buy every different variation of their name as a you know as a web address yeah. to, to do that. And kind of related to that, Tesla.com just became Tesla's website address like six months ago. Before that, it was teslamotors.com because someone else owned tesla.com and just sold it back to the company oh, fairly recently. I paid so much money for <laughs> that. Knows, I was, would have charged probably, them all the money. It was probably quite a bit. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, Morgan, thank you for joining us for this journey through the dot-com bubble. And of course, you get to stick around and answer a few questions about the decades. Maybe. All right, please. Okay. All right. This episode of Motley Fool Answers is brought to you by 23andMe.com. 23andMe.com is a genetic service that can help you discover where your DNA comes from around the world. You can learn what percentage of your DNA comes from places like Italy, Finland, East Asia, and Africa. With your 23andMe reports, you can explore your connection to the world in a whole new way by traveling to the places that reflect your DNA. Visit 23andMe.com slash fool. That's 23andme.com slash fool. What will be your DNA destination? So, it's part three also of our Trivial Pursuit game, and of course today we're covering the 90s, leading up to the dot-com bubble, so 90s and early 2000s. Categories, of course, are geography, art and literature, entertainment, history, science and tech, sports and leisure. Morgan, you always get to go first, because you're our guest. Let's do entertainment. Entertainment. This Pixar Disney movie was the first feature-length animated film to be completely computer-generated. 
Was it Toy Story? It was Toy right. Story. Oh, that was a total guess. It was the highest grossing movie of 1995. Fun fact. 95? 95. Wow. In the original plot, Woody was the villain who picked on all the other toys until they revolted. Anyway, really? Toy Story 4 is slated for release in 2019. Wow. All right, bro, your turn. Uh, let's go with history. History. All right. And as you remember, histories are always based on Time Person of the Year. While the Times Person of the Year list is usually dominated by political leaders, the 1990s saw three CEOs make the list. I'll give you a hint as to who they were by the titles of their books. Are you ready? Okay. Call Me Ted. Ted Turner. Yep, 1991. Only the Paranoid Survive. Uh, the guy who found it, Andy, Andy Grove. Oh, oh, or Steve Jobs. Nope. One of the two. Andy, Andy Grove. Grove. Andy yeah. Grove, yep. CEO of Intel, he was the person most responsible for uh, uh, microchips being awesome. Now, the third person who won hasn't actually written a book yet, but you can learn all about him by reading The Everything Store. Jeff Bezos. Yeah, that was a tough one. I was looking for a Jack Welch one. All right. All right, that leaves uh, geography, art and literature, science and tech, sports and leisure. Geography. All right. In 1999, control of the Panama Canal was fully transferred over to Panama from what country? I have no idea. Bro. United States. It was the United was States. It? Okay. Yeah. yeah. While it was we Jimmy were... Carter negotiated that, I oh, think. Wow. While okay. we were the first to succeed in building the Panama Canal in 1914, we weren't the first to try. So the French took on the effort in That's 1881. Yeah, they ultimately failed after spending $260 million on the project and Oof. losing 20,000 lives due oh, to tropical diseases and accidents. Gracious. Overall, about 25,000 people died building the Panama Canal. That's pleasant. Woo! All right. Your turn, bro. Uh, sports, I guess. After becoming the most famous... Sports and leisure. Oh, some after, leisure then. After becoming the most famous getaway car in history in the 90s, Ford ended up discontinuing this line of trucks in 1998. Morgan's got a face that says, I know this one. <laughs> I know nothing about the Bronco. The Ford Bronco. Yeah! Okay, there we go. It had been around <laughs> since 1966, but following declining sales and the infamous 1994 car chase by O.J. Simpson and Al Cowlings through L.A., Ford replaced it in 1996 with the Expedition. The crazy news is that Ford announced last January that they will be bringing back the Ford Bronco in 2020. <laughs> so get 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 one. Is that the OJ anniversary edition? I was gonna say it only goes 15 miles per hour. Isn't that crazy? Uh, all right, science and tech or arts and literature? Science and tech. Initially named a 1.5 billion dollar blunder, this telescope was launched into space in 1990 and began transmitting transmitting images back to Earth, including the deepest images of the universe ever recorded. Hubble. Yeah. Good job. You guys are getting, either my questions are getting easier or you guys are <laughs> well, getting we were, smarter. We were cognizant human beings during this time. Oh, there is the that too. Do you do have? 1920s. Right. Yeah, we, you have we were able to experience. use the bathroom and everything at this point. All right. Last one. Art and literature. As if you maybe thought this 1995 movie starring Alicia Silverstone as a Beverly Hills high school student who dabbles in matchmaking was just a teen flick, but it's actually based on the Jane Austen novel, Emma. Clueless. That's right. That's right. And if you love favorite movie, if you love the movie <laughs> Clueless, not. like I know you do, bro, then you're gonna want to read our coworker's uh, wife's. But yeah, yep. Jen Cheney um, is the wife of a coworker of ours, and she wrote 
I would say it's the definitive history of the movie Clueless. It's called As If. Yeah. So you can check it out if you yeah. love that movie. Ah, you know what? I perfect think everyone scores, was almost. a winner. Yeah, you guys got like a perfect score. Yeah. You guys managed to get them all right. Nice all work. All right. Morgan, thank you so much for joining us yet again. You're going to be back next week for our fourth and final installment. But in the meantime, uh, listeners can find you at the Collaborative Funds blog, yep. collaborativefund.com slash blog. That's right. Uh, and on Twitter at Morgan Housel, one word. And anywhere else? No, that's it. That's Just all. That's in Del- all. That's in Delray, Virginia. That's all. That's all I do. <laughs> on airplane. Don't you come, want to share your address? Don't, don't oh, come yeah. to my house. You make my wife mad. You can also find him flying to New York just about three times a week from D.C. <laughs> so right. just hang out near the shuttle. Just just hang out <laughs> just at DCA. Out. You find me somewhere. You're like, Morgan? Morgan? Is that you? Uh, Morgan, thank you again for Thanks joining for us. Me. We'll see you next week. See ya. the show. Thanks again to Morgan for joining us. If you want more Morgan, he writes for the Collaborative Fund. You, and he does other stuff for the Collaborative Fund. But the piece of him that you can get is on the blog. It's collaborativefund.com slash blog. He writes columns. They're great. They cover investing, behavioral finance. It's... Uh, I mean, you guys know. Morgan's awesome. The show is edited.comily by Rick Engdahl. Of course, our email is answers at fool.com. We will do our best to get to your question, but you guys give us a lot of questions and we love them, but we can't always get to them. But still, send us a question, please. Or just drop us a line and tell us how much you love Robert Brokamp. Or Allison. Or me. Or, oh, yeah. <laughs> or, or Rick. Or Rick. You all love Some Rick. people love Rick. If you love the music in our show, it is because of Rick. Then you love Rick. All right. For Robert Brokamp and Rick, who you love, I'm Allison Southwick. Stay foolish, everyone. Mm